Well, hello there again, and thanks uh, for listening to another episode of the Outdoor Podcast. I'm Chris, she's Gab, and you know what? I think right off the bat, Gab has something weighing on her mind that she wants to get off her chest here on this day after, well, she'll explain. I told you so is what I wanted to get off my chest. (laughs) (laughs) If you listened to our episode last week, you knew to come back today to find out who was right about what was going to happen with the Phillies playoff chances. And it was me. I was right. Yeah, I'll give you that. Victorious, victorious Tuesday. Yeah, well, okay, so they're in the playoffs now. They grabbed the last playoff position, and they did it on their own. Milwaukee actually won the game that the Phillies won last night as well. So, uh, the you know, they were going to get in anyway uh, as long as they, they won. They were truly in charge of their own destiny. However, you know, I was afraid they were going to put Milwaukee in charge of their destiny, which means that you know, the Brewers had to lose a game in order for them to back in. And I don't like backing in to anything except a parking space. You know, it's just one of those things where I wanted to see them play good ball going in to the uh, to the playoffs. Now, they've got two games left in the regular season as we record this with the Houston Astros. So we'll see. But anyway, congratulations. That's a long way for me to go to say you were right. I was wrong. <laughs> I, I understand what you're saying about the not wanting the Brewers to control our destiny, but you know what? You know what would have been great? Going into the bottom of the ninth inning, knowing that the Phillies were, were probably going to win with the way that they were playing, but knowing that we had that little bit of insurance and they didn't freaking get it. The Arizona Diamondbacks were up against the Brewers for so much of that game, and they just went into extra innings and they folded like a lawn chair, and it was just like pure agony trying to see the updates on my phone from that game and watching the actual Phillies game live and maintain all 85 text conversations I had going on of people who were just sending me stream of conscious thoughts about what was going on in this game. It's extra special because like you said, the Phillies controlled their own destiny and they got in on their own. I didn't particularly care for the the tweets that I saw that was like, good, I'm glad the Brewers tied it up. Like, just shut up, <laughs> shut up. Let us get in. However we get in, just let us get in. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess there are some haters out there, huh? I don't know. Uh, Well, I think those people were saying like, I want the Phillies to get in because the Phillies won, but it's just like, I don't, the ups and downs of the last two weeks of this team. I just, at this point was going to take the entrance. However, however, you know, that's right. right. You know, and from here on out, I don't care what the Brewers do. I mean, you know, I don't even want to think about them now. Who do we play first? Do we know yet? Is it the Cardinals? We don't know yet. Um, okay. It will depend. <laughs> I know. I, like we crossed the one bridge and now like it seems like we have another one in front of us. But Braves and Mets flip spots for first place in the NL East. So I think now the Mets will play a wild card game or maybe not. I don't know. I, there's the, these last two games here will decide. So by the time this episode comes out, it'll the pick picture will be more clear than what we have right now but which is our uh, normal for us for some yeah. reason we're always a day early with this <laughs> we i know always... we gotta start releasing this on tuesdays <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not a bad idea actually for because it seems like everything happens on tuesday anymore all right so all right there we go i'm very happy for you and i'm happy for me and i'm happy for them uh their their uh, left fielder uh led off the game last night with a home run now i've been saying for the entire season, that guy should not be the leadoff hitter. 
because that's what he does. He either hits a home run or he strikes out. So we need somebody to get on base ahead of him. Then he can hit the home run and knock in a couple of runs. I still don't get it. He's a terrible left fielder, but I'm so happy that he's on our team. So go figure. I just don't know what else to say. I'm not the expert here. So speaking of Philadelphia, we're going to be talking in the interview with a guy who's been on the air in Philadelphia uh, for a long time, uh, something I always wanted to do. This guy has spent 20 plus years on the radio in Philadelphia at the radio station I used to work at and thought that I would probably retire from, at least back then. (laughs) That didn't work out that way. But for him, it looks like it just may. We're going to talk with Andre Gardner from WMGK coming up after a quick break. Well, how about this? The people that you run into when you're doing a podcast about interesting people, Andre Gardner, the afternoon drive time guy on 102.9 MGK in Philadelphia. Andre, it is a pleasure to talk to you today. How are you, sir? Oh, my goodness, Chris. What a pleasure to speak with you. And what Chris forgot to mention was the fact he couldn't find an interesting person. So he called me. No, not true at all, sir. Not You and I have uh, a few things in common. Uh, I used to work on the radio in Philadelphia for quite a few years, and you've been on the radio in Philadelphia for quite a few years. Andre, what is it now, 20 years? It's got to be 20 plus years for you at MGK, right? At MGK alone. That's right. I just celebrated my 20th anniversary uh, this past April. And getting the chance to do exactly what I want to do since I was eight years old is just a miracle. I got the best scam going. Let's face it. (laughs) I hear you. You know, you could actually be working for a living. So, you know. (laughs) No way. This is too much fun to work. I'm just enjoying the heck out of being here and playing this music that I love, that holds so dear to me. And so many of our listeners each week loving this music, talking about the music with with passion. You know, and and the fact that I still learn something new almost every day about music that's 40 plus years old. You know, it's just incredible. Where did you grow up, Andre? I grew up, was born in uh, Bristol. At Lower Bucks Hospital, we lived in Levittown at the time, and then uh, we were moving to Willingboro in 1964, back, uh, way back when Levitt was building all these houses and complexes. Lived a little bit of a time in uh, Olney while our house was being built in Willingboro, so I lived on Master Street when I was a boy, and that's where, that's where I first heard the Beatles at three years old mm-hmm. when I was living on uh, Master Street. But then when we moved to Willingboro, that's when I, you know, my formative years, and that's where I got my first pirate radio station as a little <laughs> kid that my dad built for me. That's where the madness began, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I love stories like that. That's just amazing. Who did you listen to on as, as far as the radio goes back when you were a kid and you were getting, you know, your formative years? Well, I was a lucky uh, kid because I got to listen to my radio hero for a number of years. And that was my brother. <laughs> my brother, Bill Gardner, was uh, on the air, WFIL, WIBG, several times throughout the 60s and 70s, and even did a quick stint at MMR when it first went progressive in uh, 1969. So the fact that I could turn on our little transistor radio in the kitchen there and pop on and hear my brother play all these songs that I love and hear him hitting the posts and doing all that kind of stuff, that excited me so much that I wanted to do it too. I wanted to be like my big brother and talk over the records, you know? Well, so he was really the, the first and main influence in my career. Of course, I listened to Dan Ingram and here in town, listen to George Michael and uh, John Records, Landecker and all those guys. But Bill was my boy. He was my man. What was the age difference between you and your brother? 
he was 15 years older than I was. My other brother, Alan, is 14 years older than I am. So I have two very older brothers. And while I've claimed to my parents that I was a, 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 a fun Saturday night with a bottle of wine, that wasn't true. <laughs> I was completely planned. I just thought the age difference was a little funky, you know? The other brother in radio, too? Uh, he was for a while, yeah. He had a very successful career on talk radio at WBT in Charlotte. His name's Alan. He's retired now, living down in Jersey, and he's also a musician as well. He did TV for a while, too, at uh, Channel 48, WKBS, did some on-camera in Cincinnati, and uh, been on the air in a number of stations, Cincinnati, Orlando. So we're all radio guys, all three Gardner brothers. It's kind of rare. I think that's very cool. Out of uh, four siblings, I'm the only one that was in radio. The rest of them were kind of looked at me like, you know, when are you going to get a real job, Chris? You right. Know, I heard that. <laughs> they had grown-up jobs, didn't they? <laughs> and that wasn't even my parents. That was my younger siblings, you know? So, Well, if it was your siblings, there was envy in there because they saw how much fun you had coming home from work uh, versus how much fun they may have had, too. And I think they were a little jealous about that, too, to be no honest. Question. We have a turntable here. We don't use it very often, Chris, but it's in here once in a while. In the back of the studio, here we spin a, a disc or two. You are such a pro, dude. And, you know, one of the things I like about you, and I think just about everybody else that listens to you every day, is you have honest enthusiasm for what you do. It is not put on at all. This is, Andre, what you, what you hear is what you get. My poor, long-suffering wife has had to put up with my enthusiasm for music for over 35 years. And that's why I have a studio at home where I can just go in and go absolutely wild over new releases, bootlegs I got my hands on, new revelations about songs. We just, uh, I was just fortunate enough, and just from doing this for so long, to have gotten the Revolver box set, which comes out on October 28th. But I got it a couple of weeks ago. I did a review online and I just premiered a track today uh, to help Ringo feel better because we found out today that he had COVID. So being able to do premieres, being able to shout out to our beloveds and get our collective listeners together to send good wishes out Ringo's way. That's why I do this. You know, I'm the same kid who sat in my bedroom and my rig that my dad set up for me where we went, you know, a quarter mile around the hood, just have more listeners. <laughs> so I think you're the first guest that we've had or really any professional in the entertainment industry that I'm hearing has had two studios in his house in his lifetime. Um, so you got started with your built like from home studio when you were a kid. Can you take us into how you got started in radio? Maybe one step after that. Yeah, exactly. From the from the the interest and the desire through my brother to actually having a rig up, my my dad, who was an engineer for many many years at uh, KYW in Philadelphia, thirty five years, he was on the technical side. Also worked on the Mike Douglas show, did a whole bunch of stuff. He and my brother both saw my passion and interest for this and thought, "Wow, this kid might latch onto this and keep him off the streets." Unbeknownst to me, we had a spare bedroom in our house in Willingboro, and one Christmas morning, I opened. I could burst into tears thinking about this. I opened the door and there was a rig, the likes of which I had never seen before. It was two by fours that were constructed into a board, had a little realistic gold mixer, a tiny microphone that was a, um, it was a real to real microphone, I guess. One of those, you know, sort of had the flat uh, waffle thing on the front and two little turntables. No, at that time it was one little turntable all set up. And my dad said, this is your radio station. And I go, get out of here, my radio station. I, he, he has some records set up. I mean, it was the greatest thing in the world. So I popped the record on, you know, I'm doing my little thing. And he goes, you want to hear the great thing? And I go, what? He goes, put an album track on. All right, so I pull an album. I pull, he goes, come on. We get in the car and it freaking broadcasts like a half a mile. He's, he's hacked it. He's a pirate. And he's hacked this freaking radio station that goes around the hood. 
So I'm, I'm losing my mind at this point. Right. So I, you know, that's all I ever did was sit in that room and, uh, you know, and do what I wanted to do. And then we moved to um, Medford lakes, a lovely resort town in New Jersey back in the seventies and took advantage of the uh, very tall trees that were there. And my dad rigged this thing up where we were going like a mile around the town, man. We had boosters going on. I had kids doing shifts on the station. We we're operating like 12 hours a day. I'd go out to the pizza place while I'd be on the station. I was the big Mahoff, the PD, you know, I was living a good life. And I couldn't believe this. I was freaking 15 years old, dude. You know, I couldn't believe, I never in a million years thought I would turn that into a career. I just thought it was too far out there. I just never thought I'd have a shot. And yet my dad worked with a guy named John McCurdy who was an engineer KYW. You might even know John, right? He was an engineer. And he worked at Wizard 100, but he, uh, Wizard 100. But he also did shifts at WPST. And he says to my dad once, somebody goes, you know, your kid, I know your kid. I guess Eyewitness News had done a story on me about my bedroom radio station and stuff. Because your kid ought to send a tape to the guy about, they have an opening over there. I'm like, get out of here. Get in no way. I sent the tape. I got the job at 16 from my bedroom radio station. I got the, my first job on the radio, which is amazing. That is pretty cool. On what did you do at PST? What did they What did they do? They brought you in. What did they give you? They gave me the graveyard shift, as they would any sixteen year old first timer. I did one to seven on Sunday mornings, and uh, I still actually have the forty five, the forty five that I talked out of. It was "I'm in You" by Peter Frampton. Had like the Q marker on the label, white uh-huh. promo. You know, I keep that as a souvenir. So I did that for two weeks. Got some really constructive constructive criticism from Tom. You know, because, you know, I, this, this is who I am, right? So PST was kind of more of a, like a laid back thing. So I come out like gangbusters on all cylinders. And he's like, you know, you can be more conversational, you know? You don't have to do like top 40 stuff. Give me really good advice about how to be more natural in the air. So then like my third week, he calls me. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, what's this about? He goes, I got some bad news. I got to take you off the air. And I was like, oh, am I that bad? Am I that horrible? I was so upset. And he goes, no, no, no. We, we find out we're violating child labor laws because you're under 18. I was 16. He goes, you can't work after midnight. So we're violating the law. I'm like, oh, cripes. He goes, but don't worry. We'll call you about some work later in the summer. And I'm thinking, that's it. I'm done. Right. The old, we'll call you about some work. Right, right. Sure enough, Tom Taylor, true to his word, a gentleman and a scholar in every sense of the word, called me up. I did started doing like Saturday afternoons and then Sunday mornings. And, and that was it. That was 1977. Do you remember the rush you had when you first cracked that mic at PST and spoke your first few words? And the reason I ask is because to this day, remember that moment for me when I first got on the air at a radio station and heard myself in my headphone. With the processing and the mic processing and the compression and everything the way you've heard on the radio, you're hearing your voice in your headphones for the first time on a professional station. It was indescribable because as much as I had prep, you know, I was, I, this is, this is so nerdy, Chris, I'm sorry to get so deep in the weeds, you guys, but uh, I actually had a limiter on my station in at home, but it was like a cassette limiter. So it wasn't really powerful, you know, to, to keep the levels going. But once I heard that limiter compressor, that Optimod on PST, I couldn't believe it. It was a combination of intense euphoria and panic at the same time, all melted together into one break. I'm too embarrassed. I think I put it on my podcast years ago. I was too embarrassed to listen to my first break for years, but I was horrid, I'm sure. But I know you you, you described it beautifully. That's exactly what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. It was. <laughs> I still remember it. It's, it's just something that will never leave me. 
that and the birth of uh, my two daughters, you know, I'll never, those are three things in my life. I will never, ever forget here, here. Uh, how much of your personal life do you share on the air, Andre? At all? That's a good question. Uh, very little. I'm a pretty private guy and my family are, are private as well. So I'm not the guy who does the post about when my family and me went out to the, you know, the, the fun barbecue this weekend and stuff, you know, they, they don't want to be on social media, you know, very rarely. I have, to, I have to beg my daughter when it's her birthday or, you know, daughter's day. Can I just put a picture of you up? You know, you know that sixth grade one's not going to work anymore. Gigi, you're 23 now. Can I get a fresh picture, please? Dad, I don't look right. But uh, they respect that very well. So, but the problem is, and you raise a good point, Chris, is because with social media, you know, being so, and digital being so prevalent, everybody wanting to see so everybody wants everybody to talk about their personal lives. And I'm not really, uh, I'm not really comfortable about that. For one, it's insanely boring. No one would want to know about my personal life because I listen to spend most of my time listening to music and my studio and stuff. And two, I just, I still want to have a line, if you will, between my personal life and my professional life. Even though, as you so kindly said, I try to make my on-air persona be the same as my off-air persona in, in the um, enthusiasm standpoint. When it comes to talking about family and stuff, I tend to draw the line there. You know, it's funny because I know that uh, when your listeners meet you, when you're out doing stuff, they feel like they know you and they feel like they know you, even though you don't share, obviously, a whole lot about your personal life. And I think that's <laughs> that's an amazing talent that you can make someone feel like they know you without even divulging anything, really. Oh, and, and all I'm divulging is my love for the music. Uh, you know, and occasionally, uh, you know, if, if my daughter makes a funny line, I'll say, hey, can I say you said that? That's really funny. Can I say that? She'll, oh, yeah, yeah. Or no. Once in a while. But what I do is I'll turn it around. I think the easiest thing is to ask listeners I meet about them. Because everybody wants to talk about themselves. And I, so do I, right? You know, but uh, not on the air. But then you can turn it around and get the listener stories. And that's what I love when I go out meeting people is hearing everybody's story because everybody's got a different one, you know. Um, so now that we've touched on your social media a little bit, um, I did want to take this opportunity to say I did a little bit of a deep dive on your Instagram prior to us hopping on. Um, oh. And I just wanted to ask you about a couple of like really interesting things that I had seen and now understand that it's things that you have chosen to share with your audience, which I think really makes it that much more special. Um, yeah. I did see that you've been a vegan for over 30 years now. That's pretty incredible, mostly because I've, you know, can understand trying to do meatless Mondays and how much of a commitment that is. Um, I wasn't sure if you would be willing to talk a little bit more about that, maybe how you came to that decision and how you've lasted so long being able to make that sort of commitment. Well, I'd be glad to, to speak of that. Thank you. I've, I've been vegetarian for 32 years. I dabbled in veganism several years ago, but decided life is too short to not enjoy pizza. So I do uh, live the vegetarian uh, meat free lifestyle and have done for 30 plus years. My mother was a vegetarian for a number of years. That's my first exposure to it back in the late sixties, early seventies. But that was in the day when the meat substitutes were vegetables, which a kid wouldn't eat. And the meat substitutes available at the time were just dreadfully horrible. You know, my poor mother tried to give me like a fake hot dog one time. And it was so awful. We've come <laughs> such a long way now in Satan and all the various ways to have uh, fake meat. But um, I'd always thought about it for humane reasons. You know, I, I, there was always a disconnect for me in humane reasons about eating meat. And then uh, I had the unbelievable privilege in 1990 of meeting and having lunch with Linda McCartney. We went to Liverpool. My brother and I went to Liverpool as part of seeing Paul McCartney's oratorio there. Anyway, we get to, uh, we wanted to go to just see the oratorio and had no uh, preconceived expectations about meeting any of them, you know, although we did know Paul's tour manager, Jeff Baker. So we get to Liverpool 
and we're bugging Jeff Baker and saying, any chance we can be positive before the engine? No, no, I'll let you know, I'll let you know. Finally, maybe to get us off his back, he goes, well, Linda is doing a an event about 60 miles north of Liverpool in Carnforth at a truck stop. She's promoting her vegetarian wares, figuring if truckers will eat it, anybody will eat it, then everybody else will. Would you want to go up there and, and be a part of them? Sure. So we drive up there in our rent a car up there, and we see Jeff there, and he invites us to Linda's table, where we sit at Linda's table with Mary, her daughter, another uh, person from the press, my brother and me, sitting there talking about vegetarianism, talking about family. Linda's choking up and talking about how tight their family is. That's when I saw it. Man, these are the greatest freaking people, these McCartneys. You know, they're so freaking famous, but they're so normal. They're so normal. And I just, I was so impressed by that. And then um, about six months later, I got an autographed copy of Linda's book, her vegetarian book called uh, Linda McCartney's Vegetarian Cooking. It said, for Andre, go veggie, love Linda. And I thought, my gummit, I'm going to do it for Linda. And that was it. So I became a vegetarian. I had all the meat stuff that was in my house, threw it all away. And that was it. Started right, right then and there. And it, I haven't looked back since. Haven't missed meat a bit. But like I said, I miss cheese far too much. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I was an angry vegan. I was resenting the fact that I couldn't have this. And I thought that's a little counterproductive here. <laughs> so if I can't go through life being an angry vegan, I'd rather be a fun loving vegetarian, which I am. Try to be. <laughs> wow. That is an incredible origin story on becoming a vegetarian, mostly because I was not expecting you to end at like the McCartney family directly, you know, influence this decision for me. And um, speaking of the McCartney family, I did also want to ask you, I had seen that you posted that you were able to record a song at Abbey Road Studio. Could you tell us more about that? It's an insane moment. I mean, next to my uh, marriage to my wife and the birth of my daughter, it's the greatest moment I ever had. Greatest day of my entire life. And it came as a result of a 40th birthday present from my wife. Came home one night from a long day at K-Rock in New York. And uh, she goes, I got, got something for you for your birthday. And it's a manila envelope that I pull out and it says Abbey Road Studios on there. And I'm thinking, what in the world did she get me a tour of Abbey Road Studios? I didn't even know they did tours. I was shocked. I go, you got me a tour? And she goes, no. Open up. <laughs> so I open up the thing. And there's a thing that says, one day session at Abbey Road, March 24th in 2001. So when I regained consciousness about 10 minutes later, <laughs> I said to my wife, how in the world did you pull this off? I mean, Dark Side of the Moon, every Beatles album, you name it, has done an Abbey Road Studio. She goes, I called them. I called and they told me how much it was and I paid for a day to stay. I'm like, get out of here. It was that easy. Talked to the, the, the longtime studio manager, Colette Barber, who's so great, set the whole thing up for us. I called a bunch of my friends who are actual musicians, unlike me. And uh, together we flew out there and made a silly song that my brother and I wrote at Abbey Road Studios and spent the whole day in studio too. In that room where that magic was made, I could not believe myself when we walked in because you walk in in the control room and then you'll walk down those steps if you've ever seen the configuration. And as soon as you open the door and you walk down the steps, you get this overwhelming musty smell because you're in a basement. It's in the basement of this gigantic building. And that's the first thing I thought of. Then I kissed the floor. <laughs> so we made the song, recorded it, finished a little early. And then uh, the engineer, Peter Cobb, and his assistant, Merrick Styles, took us on this whole tour around the studio. The great thing was, too, was that we were in Studio 2, right, where all the Beatles music was made. Studio 1 and Studio 3 were both down at that point because they were fitting it for 5.1. At the time, 5.1 was brand new technology. So they had to re-outfit the recording studios to keep one studio uh, functioning. So it was ours. 
So we had to run of the place. We had the whole joint to run around and see all this stuff and eat lunch and dinner down in the cantina. I'm a big, my favorite food in the world is Indian food. Every day in the world, I'd eat Indian food. And we go down to the cantina and they're like, well, what about the menu? No, what do you want? Whatever you want, we'll make something. And I noticed there was an Indian chef in the back. I go, you can make me some Indian. He said, oh, I'll make you some Indian. He was just watch. And we had the greatest Indian. I mean, it was just, I mean, I can't even describe it. The only, only downside was I had a crappy camera. I had like the prototype digital camera. It was the Sony Mavica. And he could only take like 20 pictures. And it was real grainy. And that's all the pictures I have from him. My friend Paul shot some video, which thank, thankfully we saved. But otherwise, I don't have much of a great record. Of it. But it was just phenomenal. I have the two-inch master tape, of course. Yeah, and it's all up here, Andre. All, oh, here. all up, here. up here. You'll Better never lose that. Never. All the time I relive that. As you can tell, I like to talk, and I apologize I've been talking too long. No, no, no. That Please, that's why you're here, man. That's why you're here. Was George Martin still around at that time uh, at, at Abbey Road? He, uh, he, he had not been associated with Abbey Road for years, but had come there from time to time to do uh, various projects. He's one I never got to meet. I, was, uh, I, got, I had an interview set up with him in Las Vegas. Yeah. The plane was late. I never got to, uh, to meet him or interview him, unfortunately. How about, how about Jeff? Uh, what was his name? Jeff Emmerich? Jeff Emmerich? Yeah. I interviewed Jeff. Yeah, I interviewed him in yep. uh, 2006. We talked for over an hour. That's the thing about me. I mean, I love the Beatles, of course, more than life itself. But the technical aspect is what's, what gets me off all these years. So I've spoken with Ken Scott, Jeff Emmerich, Norman Smith, the great Norman Smith before he passed away, Alan Parsons, all these engineers who were yeah. there and helped shape those sounds that the Beatles had there in their heads and transfer them onto tape. And you get such great stories out of these guys. Oh, it's amazing. What an amazing experience you had, my man. That was, <laughs> you know, indescribable. I, yeah, I, you know, I've been a big Beatles fan all my life ever since I was 11 and saw them on uh, Ed Sullivan. Uh, I think you, you mentioned you were three when you became a Beatles fan. I wow. waited, I waited another eight years. So. <laughs> the trial period. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's right before you buy. And of course you bought in and the rest is history. You know, sometimes you sit, you meet your, uh, these people that you loved all of your life and you come away thinking, geez, you know, I, I wish I hadn't met that person because they didn't turn out to be whom I thought they were. You've sat down with both Paul and Ringo. Uh, what was that like for you? And this is the this is the truth. And I swear to you, I do not say this because I'm a fanboy. But of all the people I've had the privilege of meeting and interviewing in the rock and roll world, Paul McCartney is the nicest one. Yeah. And it's, it amazes me. It amazes me that he can be so down to earth, considering what he's done and accomplished, achieved in his life. The, uh, the first time I met him in person, of course, I was a blur here in Philly. It was my second day on the job and I was fumpering around and he was very, very cool about it. We did an interview that lasted so long. Pat O'Brien was waiting oh, outside yeah, yeah. Paul, and because we were going so long, he was getting ticked off out there. So I was happy <laughs> that things went well the first time. But then the second time I interviewed Paul was in Atlantic City a couple months later. It was supposed to be a phone call interview. We even had a phone set up outside the uh, venue that Paul would call on when it came time to do the interview. Because I'm down there broadcasting live for his show in AC. And then the time comes and goes for the interview at like 5.30 and then there's no phone call. I'm thinking, it happens. It's Paul McCartney. He's not going to call me. All of a sudden, I look and in the venue. His Jeff, uh, Jeff Baker, who I would mentioned we'd met in London years ago, and Paul Freund, like his tour manager, open up the door and go like this. And I'm like, <laughs> no. I'm like, yeah. So I get to go back. And of course, I immediately, I'm shaking like a leaf. I go backstage to this labyrinth of security and all these people. And I get to Paul's dressing room. I'll never forget it. It's dimly lit. It has a U-shaped or a C-shaped couch on it. So he sits me in one set of the couch. And I can hear over this side of the, 
wall, they're doing their sound check. So he sits me down there and I'm sitting there and I'm testing my tape recorder 740 times to make sure it works and the battery's all right and all set. And then all of a sudden, Paul walks in and he goes, I'm not kidding you. He goes, Andre, how you doing now? Look, I know Jeff said his name's Andre, but I don't care. <laughs> he walked in and said that was the greatest moment of my life. Paul McCartney sits down next to me and then Jeff Baker goes, um, hey, guys, you want something to drink or anything? And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a little thirsty. I just finished my sign. Can you get us some waters? So Jeff Baker leaves, and there I am sitting there with Paul McCartney by myself in his dressing room. Now, preface this story, not sure of the age group of people listening, but it's an important part. About an hour before this interview, when I was outside doing my broadcast, these young people came up to me very nice and said, oh, my God, we love you on the air. Thank you so much for the Beatles, blah, blah, blah. We have a gift for you. I'm like, oh, great. We got some Beatles. They hand me a joint. So, of <laughs> course, I just put it in my pocket. You know, I don't know what I do. So, meanwhile... I'm sitting there with McCartney, just me and him sitting there. I'm thinking, you know what? He looks like, oh, I could whip this thing out right now and maybe have a little smoke with Paul. And then, of course, that's the one side. The other side's like, you idiot. They're going to get throw you out immediately. Don't even think about it. So I, I held back, but I did think about it for a second. Can you imagine? Whip this thing out with Paul. Hey, a quick doobie here while we keep going. Um, we had a fantastic interview that second time and, uh, you know, just a great guy. And then he called me again in 2005 and we had a great time on the way to the venue. He He stopped and was like, talking to cheering people while I was at the venue. It was, just, it was magic. I mean, and every time your heart's beating 216 beats a minute because you're talking to a flipping beetle. You can't believe it. Well, the guy wrote the soundtrack to our lives, Andre. I mean, think I, about it. Yeah, just, just sitting there looking at him. I'm looking at every wrinkle and pore in his face while I'm talking to him. This is the freaking guy who wrote Helter Skelter, my favorite song of all time. I can't believe it. You know, and you just can't believe it. If you think it's fake, it's like your brain almost plays a trick and goes, this really isn't him sitting there with indescribable and Ringo too I've met him in person I've had interviews with him he's fun as hell he loves to bust your chops the last time I talked to him he goes oh you still have a job Andre huh you know that kind of stuff I get my chops busted by a beetle I'll take why not yeah, well I mean it seems to me the other three Beatles used to bust on Ringo all the time so I guess he you know found that kind of cool that he could give it to somebody else sure you know? always got away with words coming up with you know a hard day's night tomorrow never knows all those Ringo malapropisms he comes up with but it's good. It's good. I'm just such as you could tell. I'm so lucky and so fortunate that I somehow fell into this and have scammed everyone as long as I have for 45 years. I'm just loving life and, and living every minute, you know, and, and enjoying the music that I get to share with my audience so much. That's really what it boils down to, you know, and the fact that we can use, as you have done so many years, whether it's a B101 or Magic or New Brunswick, help use the power of this radio station to help the community, whether we're doing Habitat for Humanity, we're doing Fill Abundance to feed people. You can use the power of our QM, our audience, to mobilize and, and donate. And uh, seriously, how can you call this work? This is pleasurable. Amen, Start brother. I hear you. And I, I totally agree with that. A guy who worked in adult contemporary radio for most of my career, and I got the opportunity to go out to California and work at a classic rock station in Sacramento for four years before I retired. I finally got to play the body of music that I grew up listening to. And, you know, it, after years of Celine Dion and Barry Manilow and, you know, all of that, <laughs> I, I finally get to play rock and roll. And I never enjoyed radio as much as I did the last four years, I got to say. So and you did afternoons, right? Weren't you the afternoon? Guy? I, yeah, I did afternoons. Yeah, that's right. Luckily, I wasn't up against you, Andre. Because oh, you, come on now. Luckily, I wasn't claimed... against you, Chris. Goodness gracious, Mr. Double-digit ratings all the time. <laughs> Good Lord. Power in your presence at those numbers. Primitive. What do you like to do for fun, buddy, when you're not there? I know what you do 
is a lot of fun for you. I get that. I totally get that. It comes across. But when you're not there, what do you do for fun? Uh, number one, I like to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Big fan. That's a great activity. Yeah, vastly, uh, vastly overrated and vastly underutilized. But no, I do like to sleep in my spare time. I, you know, not during the day time, but I like to get a good solid on the weekends and stuff. And I'm also uh, a bird watcher, dare I say. So I love to go to Valley Forge Park or go down to John Heinz National Wildlife Center and see if maybe I can finally uh, confirm that I've seen the hooded warbler. Things like that excite me. And that's a good, quiet, solitary way to enjoy myself and just go out there and be me and the birds. And it's a, the crazy thing about going to Heinz is I don't know if you've ever been down there, but I can be in this little wooden hut that they've constructed where you can watch birds in their in way. And then you could look out of the horizon, all of a sudden you see a plane take off because you're right down by the airport. It's a crazy yeah. stuff. Birds don't seem to mind. I've seen plenty of species. You know, I go down to Ed, Edwin Forsyth down there in Jersey and mm -hmm. check it out, you know, on a quiet day, drive down there on an early Saturday morning. I like to do that stuff. Like I say, otherwise I'm a, I'm a terribly boring individual. <laughs> um, so I hate to ask you this because I, I fear it'll be like asking you to pick a favorite child, but do you yeah. have, I know you said Helter Skelter is your favorite Beatles song, but do you have a top five? I, that's a good question about top five. I know my favorite has, has waffled between Helter Skelter and you know my name. Look up the number. Don't ask me why. I think that's the quirkiest <laughs> Beatles song ever. I just, since I was a little kid, I've been obsessed with it. I can say my favorite album is the White Album, clearly. Even though it was the least cohesive of the of the whole band's work, it just showed to me some of the best songs I've ever heard. But now having this Revolver album too, that's always has been and solidifies its position in my life as my second favorite Beatles album. Because it really was with Revolver that they pushed the limits of both songwriting and the recording studio past what anyone thought we could achieve with backwards and very speed and this artificial double tracking created by Ken Townsend at Abbey Road in 1966, just monumental stuff, you know? So it's hard to say. I mean, well, I say, uh, I say, uh, Helter Skelter, I gotta say Strawberry Fields is up there, right? I mean, that's gotta be one of the greatest songs ever made. I am the walrus. I will from the white album with maybe the greatest love song ever written mother nature's son. I, I, I weep like an eight month old when I hear that song <laughs> all the way through. It's, it touches me so. So it's hard to narrow down, but I've I mentioned some of my favorites. How about you all? What do you all like from Beatles? Well, I'm, I'm, thanks, thanks for asking. Actually, I would go back one album prior to, uh, to Revolver. I go back to Rubber Soul. That's when I thought these guys are growing up. You know, their songwriting is starting to, it's not all about, yeah, 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 and I want to hold your hand. That And I, of course, I was hitting puberty at the time that album came out. So I think that has something to do with it. I, you know, all those feelings. And uh, I'm sorry to say this in front of you there, Gab, but those feelings that uh, guys get inside. When, and then you're listening to some music. Oh, Chris. Just, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're listening to some music that is just grabbing you by the heart. Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, that is my favorite Beatles album to this day. Although I got to say, like you, I love the White Album. I love Abbey Road. That have you ever seen? Like the second side of Abbey Road, will that ever be matched anywhere in music again? How can it? How can how can that body of work ever be matched? To yeah. the, the the quality of work in the time they gave it to us is simply astounding. Yes, Creedence Clearwater Revival recorded three albums in 1969. That's pretty darn impressive for sure. But he's talking about the different musical styles, production, songwriting value, different vocal effects. No one even touched the Beatles. How about you, Gab? How about your favorite Beatles song? Do you have one? 
I do. Um, I'm going to be kind of lame and do like some of the more well-known. And I think that probably speaks to my age just a little bit. Although I think my dad just got, well, have gotten very upset upon hearing this later on, but um, <laughs> I absolutely love the song. Here comes the sun. Like every time that the the year is changing, like I always play it, especially as we head into like the spring and summer, because it really just, it lifts my mood. Um, I'm a big daylight savings time should be permanent proponent. So like when we actually are doing the spring ahead, there's, there's really nothing like I associate so strongly with happiness as like both that songs to sort of capture the mood and like the sun staying out longer. Um, and then of course I love Hey Jude. I could listen to that song all 10 minutes of it at any given time in any given situation. Not lame at all. Those are two amazingly beautiful songs, timeless classics, both of them. But I think what you ought to do, Gabby, is Google, you know my name, look up the number. I think you may have a new favorite Beatles song there. That's a wacky one, though. That's a real wacky one. I mean, it, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, it's not. It, it's basically, it's barely a song, but it's just John Lennon came in with this mantra, you know my name, look up my number, and they turned the whole song in it. And it was recorded over the span of two years. They recorded it first during the Sgt. Pepper sessions, then they kept it in the can for years, and then came back in 69, just John and Paul to finish it off when they weren't exactly getting along very well at the time. But uh, John did all that goofy blubbering in the song and stuff do you know the, the pictures chris there's these famous pictures of beatles in abbey road in 1967 and george Car harrison is wearing a stamp out the beatles t-shirt i don't know if you've ever seen that show no, no but that was taken the day they recorded you know my name which i just always thought was an interesting uh interesting thing i love I I what five times four is but i know what he was wearing the day to recorded a song <laughs> Um, I also love that you got to go to Abbey Road Studios because I'm going to say a very millennial thing here, but I studied abroad when I was in college um, and I went to London <laughs> um, uh, and I, I did the walk. I, I have the photo um, with three friends, but we weren't allowed past the gate. So, you know, I, I can definitely understand how incredible of an opportunity that was that you got to go quite literally inside and see where all the magic happened. It was absolutely insane to, to describe. And then we, we took a lunch break about halfway through and took some pictures of ourselves out in front. So while we're taking pictures of ourselves, there's people on the other side thinking, oh, who's that? I'm like, now nah, just a couple of slumps from going up. <laughs> Look at us. I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> but that was fun. It was just a really fun time. I'm glad you did the walk. I'd love to see the photo. I collect them too. I collect uh, listeners sent photo of their walks. So oh, really? That'd be fantastic. And the key is, as you probably learned, having studied there, you go on Sunday morning when everybody's at church, take the first tube to the St. John's Wood stop, and you get the whole place to yourself. And we did. There was nobody there when we were there. It was beautiful. Ah, this is so much fun. And I love doing this. Thanks, Ray. It's a very big honor uh, talking with you, Chris. Seriously, big fan for many years, as you know. Oh, well, thank you. And I could say the same about you. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that I said before. I felt like I know you. I never met you before this is yeah, we've never met in person no you and i have never met we've never even really had a conversation i think we had a brief encounter on social media you know facebook or something yes. years ago but it's one of those things where i said that when you meet somebody that you've admired for all those years sometimes it's disappointing you walk away thinking oh shit i wish i hadn't met him or her uh because now all that's gone you are the same guy i thought you were all these years and you just present yourself very, very honestly, I tip my hat to you. If I had a hat, I would tip it. <laughs> hey, man, look, uh, I want to let you go because I know that, you know, what being on the air is like, first of all, to do what you do, you have to be able to do more than one thing at a time. I, I understand that. But uh, 
it's really hard sometimes to actually do what you're doing right now, which is talking to us on a podcast and doing your afternoon show there at MGK. So uh, thank you so much, Andre Gardner, for giving us some of your time this afternoon. <laughs> we do appreciate it. And it was such a kick talking to you. You've, oh. got, you've got some great stories, man. You really do. Uh, maybe someday I'll turn them into a book. Who the heck knows? But it was great chatting with you both. Thank you very much for your time. And really, I love doing this. As you could probably tell, I'm an unmade bed who thrives on chaos. So the more <laughs> I'm doing at the same time, the better. So I thank you both for your time and your insight. And I look forward to seeing uh, this one in airs. Andre, do you have anything you want to plug before we go? No, just that uh, Chris McCoy should uh, still be doing a shift somewhere because he sounds great. And uh, if you were in Philly, I'd be bugging him to do a shift here at MGK. <laughs> Thank you, man. I am 100% retired, though. I appreciate that. Well, congratulations to you, my man. I appreciate uh, all you did for us here in Philly all these years. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So as we just learned from the interview, Andre's literally been around forever, two-thirds of my life, if not more than that. He's been a voice of a radio station that was very frequently played in my house. I didn't get an opportunity to tell him this, but he really was the voice soundtrack of every more recent memory I have of our backyard pool days during the summer. It's just like we got MTK on, we got the pool going, the grill, and I can hear Andre Gardner talking. You know, that's true. Every time we've been over for a party, you know, uh, in the summertime that, that your dad has MGK on. So yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> it was super cool to, to put a, face to the name because yeah. that, you know, mm -hmm. you need to text Andre and tell him that that's, <laughs> that's a pretty cool little nugget there. <laughs> I like that. That's uh wow. Uh, okay. So anyway, uh, yeah, Andre is uh what a great guy. And like we said, he is who he is and you get, you know, what you hear is what you get. That's the real him. <laughs> He's that excited about almost everything. I'm still really impressed by the fact that he had two studios in his house in two different houses, two studios in his lifetime have he's had in his yeah. houses when people are averaging about zero. Well, when your father's an engineer, I guess that's part, and you should know, cause your dad is an engineer. <laughs> there is so, no studio, there is no studio in our house. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but uh, my brother was able to help you with your science projects as you were going through school. I Fair. would imagine. Yeah. So. It's always good to have an engineer around. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> Especially if you're a radio station that's off the air. That's what <laughs> you want. And that's when you can't find one, is in my experience. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was real enjoyable. And uh, another good get for you there, Gabby. Thank you so much for inviting Andre onto the podcast. So we'll see what we can uh, put together for next week. In the meantime, we hope you guys have a good week. We hope the Phillies have a good week. Go the, Phillies. Yeah. By the time we talk to you next week, they'll either be out of it or still in it. That's terrifying. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> have a great week. We'll see you on the Entrepreneur Pod next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.